Australia has always been rich because we are part of an international trade system. Mm. And when there's a significant halt for an international trade system, um, Australia is really in trouble. Um, now, we have 25 million people. Um, we don't have a consumer base to say, Australia first, let's manufacture everything here, let's make sure, let them, um, uh, uh, put up the walls. And we never did. Um, from the early 19th century, our economy was successful because it was an international trade-dependent economy. Now, how, how dependent we have become on international trade and um, whether or not there are ways in which we need to hedge that risk for future shocks like this, they're really important questions, but they're very different questions to the kinds of um, conversations, they're very different conversations to the kinds of conversations that you might be able to have, say, in an economy the size of the United States. You're listening to the Sydney Ideas Podcast. Today, we're talking about Australia's road ahead as we begin our COVID-19 recovery. What are the opportunities and challenges? We have three great minds with excellent insights in this conversation. Catherine Carver is the General Manager of Client Coverage at the National Australia Bank. Prior to her work at NAB, she was at ANZ, Westpac, as well as Macquarie Bank. Dr. Michael Spencey, Vice-Chancellor of the University of Sydney. He was appointed the 25th Vice-Chancellor of the University in 2008. And leading this conversation is Mark Scott Ayo, Secretary of the New South Wales Department of Education. He began his career as a teacher before taking senior roles at Fairfax Media and then going on to become Managing Director at the ABC. Here's Mark kicking off the conversation. We, we're going to talk about recovery and the, the challenge facing uh, particularly the Australian economy as far as recovery is concerned. But in a sense, before we do that, let's just get a bit of a read on where we think we are today. Uh, Catherine, you've got unique insights across multiple sectors given your work at NAB. What's your read of the COVID-19 impact on the economy and, and, and what are the real challenges that you see us facing now? Look, I, I think it's extensive and it's hit uh, clearly the SME part of uh, the Australian economy as it has with a number of other Western economies and the consumer um, and, and they've been hit uh, very hard. In Australia, we obviously have a big services um, uh, uh, SME uh, area or business segment um, and, and you know, we've been working with government uh, in terms of packages and obviously I think, I think the government has done a really good job in terms of JobKeeper and JobSeeker in particular and that has been reflected in the UK uh, and in the US and I think the SME packages that the government has done, whilst that wasn't your question, I just want to call out, uh, I think, versus a lot of other Western countries, we've done a really good job. That's really important because that is the backbone of the Australian nation and the economy. Um, I think as it pertains to some of the larger uh, corporate and institutional accounts, hospitality and tourism has been hit massively. Uh, and, and travel and tourism, whether it be airlines, airports, uh, all that ecosystem that wraps around that uh, has been uh, extraordinarily hit and uh, I won't jump into education because I think Michael's even more qualified than I uh, to talk about that but clearly uh, the the bans in terms of international students and the the direct impact that that's had on the university Sydney University and other universities is 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 profound uh, I think the um, you know the real estate uh, anyone anyone that's uh, overtly connected with retail and just the change in how we buy as consumers is massive uh, how we how we 
engage in buying food, consuming more broadly has fundamentally changed because we can't go to restaurants. So, you know, across the the, the uh, in corporate and institutional uh, area, it's uh, a range of, of very extreme impacts might not get back, although the access to capital has been been really good in terms of a number of our clients and other clients being able to access. So I might just pause there because I could well, talk for a long time. You know, we've had three decades of economic growth uh, here in Australia. Uh, we're not going to come through this without going into recession. Um, but to what extent do you think uh, the pandemic has revealed the underlying structural weaknesses uh, that have existed in the Australian economy that may have been concealed a bit by decades of growth? Uh, where have the vulnerabilities been exposed? Look, I, I think uh, anyone that doesn't have a um, business to con consumer um, digital offering, uh, that's going to be exposed if they've just had business to business. Um, I, I think um, whether we want to work from home or work from the office, I think whether you do, you agree with a 50-50 split or whatever your split is, it's fun, it has changed, right? And so the impact on you know, the different property uh, aspects is yet to be uh, tested. How we buy as consumers, uh, how we go out and, and enjoy a meal, whether we want to do that in a restaurant or not, um, uh, whether we go to a completely cashless society, um, so there is no cash. You know, certainly we're doing a lot of work around that. Just how you adopt online, uh, especially for some of our aged parts of our population and how we educate uh, them. So I think there's been some areas, bad management, so they probably won't come through it. Then you've got actually uh, different um, uh, changes as a result of the pandemic that mean if you can change quickly. And we've seen a number of our, our retailers actually quickly move to doubling and tripling what they're doing digitally. So some people are moving really quickly in terms of, the, and banks I would put, and I would put NAB in, into that uh, category as well. So I think, uh, and then there's some people who were already in industries that were uh, uh, alive and well, great management, great business model. And you can see some of our property uh, clients who were big into logistics and, and globally into logistics. You can see some of our clients who already had a great uh, digital proposition uh, and, uh, you know, who will do well. So I think it's a typical kind of bell curve in terms of bad management's bad management, uh, not having a well-structured um, you know, capital structure. Uh, and then there's people who can move quickly as a result of really leveraging um, with a little L uh, the, the crisis and getting cut through on decisions. And Michael can speak to just the cut through that Sydney University got in terms of, you know, transferring uh, all of their students online. Michael, um, before we come to the university, what's your read of um, what's been revealed about the Australian economy by COVID-19? So I think there are um, all of the sorts of internal things that Catherine has been talking about and the radical change to online and the sense that things may not go back um, uh, to being as they were before and all the rest of it. But it's also made us remember why Australia has um, always been rich. Australia has always been rich because we are part of an international trade system. Mm. And when there's a significant halt for an international trade system, um, Australia is really in trouble. Um, now, we have 25 million people 
Um, we don't have a consumer base to say Australia first. Let's manufacture everything here. Let's make sure let um, uh, uh, put up the walls. And we never did. Um, from the early 19th century, our economy was successful because it was an international trade-dependent economy. Now, how how dependent we have become on international trade, and um, whether or not there are ways in which we need to hedge that risk for future shocks like this, they're really important questions, but they're very different questions to the kinds of quest, um, conversations, they're very different conversations to the kinds of conversations that you might be able to have, say, in an economy the size of the United States. So it's been a very complicated time for the university, and part of it has been around that mix and dependence and the importance of international students to the business model of the university. Just take us through a little bit of the thinking that you've been involved in and those immediate strategic steps that you've needed to make to manage the university during these recent months. So look, there has been a, um, a structural shift in the Australian university sector since about the early 1990s. So of the 170 um, years of the university's history, it's only primarily been funded by governments for about three decades. All of the rest of the time, the, the university has in one way or another um, had to live on its own wits. Um, and in 1990, 90% of the university's funding um, came from government sources. Now it's about 30% of its funding. Now, one of the ways in which the university system, I think, has shown extraordinary creativity is that it said, with incre the increasing cost of research and indeed increasing student expectations in terms of the sort of wraparound services that we provide, but also the kinds of classroom experience that people have, the sort of technology that's available to students, the sorts of um, experiences the university education provides. With that growing cost, and at the same time with a massive expansion in Australia of the number of people participating in university um, education, if we're not going to be an incredible burden on the Australian taxpayer, we've got to find a way of looking after ourselves, and that's been to be educators to the world. You know, at the University of Sydney, we have students from um, uh, 140 different countries. They make up about 44% of um, our student body, and they account for $1.2 billion of our $2.8 billion annual revenue. So if all of a sudden that stops, that's a problem for us, just as it's a problem for tourism, just as it's a problem for hospitality, just as it's a problem for many other businesses. And it's a massive problem for the economy too, isn't it? I mean, the, there's a, always an understating of the importance of international students and international education to the Australian economy. In 2019, just the University of Sydney contributed $5.3 billion to the New South Wales economy and about $5.9 billion to the national economy. And a um, drop in international students represents about a two point, at our place, represents a potential economic risk of about $2.6 billion for the state and a loss of about 12,000 jobs outside the university. Now, their jobs in infrastructure, their jobs in hospitality, their jobs in accommodation, their jobs in tourism, their jobs... Um, in all those other areas. Where the university has been in a kind of interesting position, though, is that unlike, say, for example, many travel operators whose businesses have essentially stopped, we still have 86% of our students, <laughs> and just that our revenue has significantly dropped. And so I what mean, we've had to think about is how we can do as much um, with less. 
one of the questions, though, that's, that's begged by all that, given the importance, has been, in a sense, the noteworthy lack of support that's come, particularly from the Commonwealth, uh, to universities, and notably uh, the exempting of public universities from JobKeeper provisions, and, and also the, um, the exclusion of international students from other uh, welfare schemes that have been ramped up in recent times. Why has the sector been unsuccessful in prosecuting the need the way other sectors have been successful? I mean, what, what do you attribute that to? So I think it's a really complicated question. And um, uh, the first um, issue, obviously, for the Commonwealth Government is an issue of comparative need. And so we as an institution um, uh, have lost about $470 million of turnover this, um, this year or are predicting to. But we'll survive, provided we can get those international students back for first semester next year. Um, and that's not implausible. Australia is a very um, COVID-safe jurisdiction with a world-class um, education in the English language um, and certainly a better bet for your education now um, in the large mobility markets than either the US or um, the UK or Canada, our other competitors. So presumably at some point the decision was made that the universities will survive. But I think there's actually a, a deeper issue too. That is that there's an understanding that while it's true that domestic teaching doesn't wash its face, um, a large part of the cost of running a contemporary university is in research. And I'm not sure that the sector has a, over a long period of time um, really explained the value of research to the Australian community. If you think about um, at our place over the last little while some of the research we've commercialized is you know the world's um, first end-of-life plastics recycling technology that the PM boasted about in the United Nations last year or um, a form of wound healing um, that's just been bought by the Botox people that means that um, you can inject a gel into a wound and it heals with absolutely no scarring um, a battery that we think is the most stable kind of battery that you can have that actually will be able to be built into um, building materials so that you can use the whole building as solar paneling. And the kind of list goes on. Uh, everybody says when those stories are on the telly, wow, isn't that amazing? But nobody thinks about the value of research to the Australian economy or the value of having places that are, cre that are producing really clever people who drive Australia's um, services economy who drive Australia's, um, the, the other sectors of Australia's economy. And that story about the value of universities, I'm not sure universities have been very good at telling. And therefore, politicians at all level tend to think of us as just big high schools. Um, yep. And, you know, high schools are great. And I'm certainly not going to tell you that they're not, um, uh, not, not a marvellous thing, but they do a slightly different thing. Sure. Sure in that we're in the production, uh, involved in the production of new knowledge and understandings as well. Before we go on to, to think through what rebuilding and recovery uh, looks like, um, you mentioned the, the market opportunity that might emerge through Australia having a COVID-safe reputation and the success we've had here in, in flattening the legendary curve. Um, one of the interesting things that we can see there now is not just... Um, a recession looming globally, but increased trade tensions as well, and, and notably um, some significant skirmishes between Australia and China, and the US now chiming in to provide commentary on that. Um, 
firstly, Michael, how, how do you rate the risk of a real trade war erupting in the midst of all of this and that's impact on the Australian economy? And are you concerned at the language and, and what the language might do um, and the sentiment behind the language as far as the potential impact of enrolling um, Chinese-based students in Australia and whether it might flow over to the international student market? The University of Sydney has been involved with modern China for a very long time. You know, we had researchers in China in the 1960s, long before um, uh, uh, Australian government had diplomatic relations with China. And indeed, we have over 300 researchers who work um, with modern China. And that country is investing more in scientific research at the moment than just about any other country in the world and is on a real upward trajectory. And Australia has an opportunity to partner there. The links are so strong and so old and so deep um, for us, but also I think for Australia, that um, when a family has a kind of family or friends have a family spat, um, uh, uh, things look a bit rocky, but I don't think it changes the fundamentals of the relationship. Um, that said, I think we have to be really careful about the... Um, casual demonization of China that's going on at the moment in um, parts of, um, uh, in large parts of the media and um, amongst some of the political class. Um, because I think that is just not helpful to the relationship all up. Um, I'm relatively confident that international students will, from China will continue to come. And we're almost in the time zone, same time zone as your mum and dad. And that makes a huge amount of difference when you're calling home. Um, we are um, a safe and attractive place to be that is um, familiar with and comfortable with Asian culture. All of that has got to be a great tick. Um, but we need as a country to treasure the relationship with China and to make sure that where we have differences, they're clearly articulated and thoughtfully dealt with in diplomatically appropriate ways. Um, and that we don't just engage in the kind of easy China bashing that's happening in some parts of the media at the moment. We talked earlier about the, um, the virus revealing the underlying condition. Uh, what have we learned about our political leadership in recent months and have our political leaders uh, done better or worse than we may have expected? So I might uh, add some uh, perspective there, and, and if I may uh, extend uh, the political leadership uh, point to a broader leadership uh, comment, uh, including my own learnings, if I may. Yeah. I think we've actually seen our political leaders, both at the uh, Commonwealth uh, federal level and the state level, really uh, step up and and... Uh, I use the word very decisive leadership, and I think we saw that um, at the start of COVID very overtly uh, and, and much quicker and thoughtful than virtually any other Western country with a couple of exceptions. Uh, so I, I think credit where credit due. And I think the openness, uh, certainly from what we saw as an organisation, with taking different perspectives on board to really help uh, the SME and consumer uh, you know, parts of our economy um, that I mentioned before uh, really deal with uh, both at an industry body level and also at the federal uh, and state level. So uh, compliments, I think, obviously, as, as this continues, the thoughtfulness and the nuancing of how we need to bring 
solutions which really can help us in the long term, especially around fiscal policy. Um, we all still need to keep working together and being a little brave uh, from, from time to time. As a broader point into what I've seen out of the clients I, I deal with or the customers I deal with, and Ross McEwen, our own CEO, if I can put a plug in for him, uh, I think we've seen some amazing leadership. Um, and I'm fortunate enough to, to talk to many CEOs across corporate Australia. Um, but I would also say the not-for-profit sector uh, as well. Again, talking to people like Michael and, and Belinda, um, uh, you know, it, it just the, the broader authenticity of their leadership, um, the vulnerability of their leadership, um, when they have to make the hard calls, they're making the hard calls, uh, I think. Uh, and the last piece I would say is, is the care factor, the care about the students, uh, the care about uh, their, their colleagues and, and employees. Michael, are you a fan of the National Cabinet? And do you, do you think that, that we're going to need new structures or structures to continue like that to get us through some of the challenges that we're going to face now? So I think this has been a fascinating moment for federalism um, because, in a sense, the National Cabinet has demonstrated our real capacity to work together. But the fact that within minutes, states were throwing up borders between one another um, uh, reminds us that local identities in Australia still really matter in one way or another. And I think, therefore, more than ever going forward, the conversation about what this teaches us about federalism, um, our capacity to act together, the range of things that we ought to be acting together, but we've probably just handled the transaction costs of not doing it very well. Um, mm -hmm. I think that's a really important question. And just as every organisation is asking the lessons learned from COVID question, I think Australian federalism needs to do the same thing. I mean, one of the characteristics is is the speed, I think, with, with, they, with which they've operated. I mean, COAG is, you know, so glacial, you know, it can be overwhelmed by continental drift. It can take just years and years and years to get anything on the agenda or through an agenda. Uh, just the ability of our leaders to sit down and be talking once a week, twice a week. The problem there is, of course, that that's reflected in every organisation. So similarly, when uh, we were lucky as an institution, really as a country, because... Um, from the university sector point of view, because we had COVID first in China before we had to deal with it in our own country, which wasn't true um, for lots of other jurisdictions. And so within two weeks, we had over a thousand units of study online and we have been, and then moved very quickly online and the speed of some of the stuff, you know, we had, um, we haven't had many COVID cases, but um, when we had our first one, the poor chap had been to the doctor four times before he managed to be given a test. It was very early in the process. Um, and so he'd been on campus for 10 days. Within 24 hours, we had three um, buildings um, cleaned to health standard, 165 close contacts um, contacted, over 1,000 students um, who were in the next circle of contact, individually contacted, not by phone, but by email. We dealt with the government. And it just showed the capacity of something that people think of as a relatively slow-moving institution to work very quickly and very effectively together when the crisis is on. The difficulty is, what happens when the crisis is not on? And, um, and, and speed is good, but it's not always the best way of making decisions. And how do you go from um, an effective panic mode um, or, 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 or you know, an effective crisis response mode back to a um, leaner and quicker and more effective than usual 
but not quite as directed as crisis leadership is appropriately um, and, and, and more consultative kind of leadership for business as usual. I think that's a question for the country, but it's a question for every organisation. I think, Mark, if I could just add to that last kind of uh, comment that, that Michael made, I, I think we, we talk a lot about client centricity uh, or in Michael's case, student centricity, a partner centricity. I think this is a massive wake-up call to all of us as leaders to actually say, if we put our, our students, our key stakeholders, uh, and be clear about what we actually are trying to achieve, and everyone is focused on doing that, then we will maintain the momentum. It does take leadership, but I think it's really important that we are thoughtful about the outcomes that we're really trying to achieve and hold even, ourselves to account. But even that's tricky, Catherine, right? Yeah. Because, um, so for us... For about three months, it was about getting those students here and keeping those students yes. and keeping students happy online. And there was a very focused set of objectives. But of course, a university is a complex social institution <laughs> in which people have extraordinary um, expectations. And therefore, in normal time, the but why aren't you doing A and B and C and X yeah. and Y and Z on top of your core mission of you know P and Q and R? Um, it, it is a much more distracting conversation. And I think it's managing that better than perhaps we have in the past that's going to be the real challenge. Let's just talk a little bit about um, the, the national challenges around recovery and then opportunities for the participants online. Uh, but what are the key steps we need to do to make this recession as shallow as it can be and the recovery as strong and enduring as it needs to be? Uh, Prime Minister's put a number of issues on the agenda this week. Um, workplace reforms um, uh, is one of them, almost a return to Bob Hawke-like consensus politics and leadership. Um, Catherine, what needs to be on the agenda to help us get through this with minimal harm? Well, I think uh, you talk about reform. I probably have uh, uh, three uh, that I think about, which is around taxation, around labour reform and regulatory uh, reform. Um, a little bit biased, but I'm thinking there, there's some of the fiscal return. Uh, I think we've talked about leadership. Uh, that's obviously, you know, at the individual organisational uh, level. I, I think our, our clients, our, our colleagues, um, the community at large uh, are absolutely, have got a taste for decisive leadership. Uh, and I don't think they want to go back. And so I think, you know, potentially you could see a whole lot more from a community stepping up. And we've seen that. We certainly, as a bank uh, in the financial services sector, saw that uh, um, moment of truth in a big way last year. I, I think that'll be, be more. So there, there's some of the things I think of. Uh, I might pass to Michael to get his reflections. Michael, what's, uh, what's on your agenda? So for us, it's obviously about um, uh, restarting the university's uh, international student business, but it's also about having the conversation about what the post-COVID university might look like. And I think that's, um, that's an important part of, a re of, of recovery as well for every organisation to be saying, um, well, what is it that we left behind in this context that we want to, we want to leave behind? And what is it that we want to really focus on in the next little while? And I think having the sense of purpose that Catherine was talking about before will be really crucial. Looking at the, the education system in New South Wales, particularly the schooling system, I think all the challenges that we had in January are still very live now, despite 
COVID-19. And part of our question is, what have we learned through this experience that will really help us address those fundamental problems? And so COVID-19 has exposed further inequality that can underpin our schooling system. So what are the decisions we need to make now? You know, I, I think a real issue for us as students in rural and remote areas the PISA results indicate a three-year difference in learning outcomes by the time they're aged 15. Mm. And so this embrace of technology, this great professional development of teachers, the ability to be able to deliver lessons online, how does that fit into a solution to overcome the tyranny of distance as it manifests itself in the school system? So we're just trying to think through what have we learned and how do we apply it to those issues that we still hadn't resolved? There are some big policy ideas that have emerged um, and some quite bold steps. Free childcare is one. Do you think that there will be a clamouring uh, uh, for to keep some of the things that were imposed at a time of economic emergency because there is a feeling that whilst that is an expensive policy initiative, there are enormous benefits that emerge. And, and that's just one of many that have been suggested. You know, the uh, universal basic income is one. Uh, another how our social safety net should be, the job seeker allowance uh, being doubled. To, to what extent do you think there's a desire to, to hold on to some of these one-off initiatives as underpinnings of how we want society and the economy to operate from here? For 30 years, we had come to believe um, as a community, even those of us who didn't believe it, um, that the parameters of public discourse had shifted so that the appropriate domain of government activity was getting um, smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller. And all of a sudden in a crisis, you want a government to govern. And you all of a sudden think that uh, it's not just a fun sport to slag off politicians, but actually these are people with quite serious responsibility and whether or not they do their job well um, isn't a matter of mild amusement because the real action in your society is happening elsewhere but a matter of real, a really critical um, uh, issue um, for the economy and for the community more generally. So I think part of the general answer to your specific question about individual schemes is going to be what do people come to expect of government um, and what's the deal going to be between um, government and the community more generally about what government might be expected to provide. And there's a sort of um, opposite thing that's also going on, which is while we've been um, wanted in one way or another smaller government and being critical of governments and seeing um, politics as a sort of um, sport for those who are interested, at the same time, we've also been very um, intolerant as a community of um, failure of any kind, um, expected perfection in all areas of our, of our life and all the rest of it. Of course, the thing about a good, a big, a good crisis is it teaches you to major on the majors, not sweat the small stuff, whatever mm. um, naff phrase you want. And I think that somehow coming out of this, there's going to be um, movement along those two lines. Um, politics is going to be seen to matter. And the question of what we want governments to do, particularly about things like inequality, are going to be, um, I think, you know, really revivified conversations on the one hand. But on the other hand, I think we're also going to 
have to ask ourselves in a time when various sorts of threats will remain real, what really matters in the public conversation um, and how do we get governments to focus on those things rather than the trivia? One of the things that's really mattered in public discourse for several decades now, Catherine, has been debt. Recent months, we've all been Keynesian again, but if you look at the discourse, um, surplus uh, budgets are good, deficits are bad, debt needs to be eliminated as quickly as possible. And what's noteworthy about uh, this economic crisis is that the flexibility through monetary policy is absolutely minimal, given the level of interest rates where we started. As we think our way through it, where do we put our fixation on debt? And how relaxed should we be about spending big money, not just for six months, but for a sustained period of time to drive a recovery and drive the reshaping of an economy on the back of an incident like this? Uh, When I think about that question, I'll I'll answer it in a few different ways. I think the first thing is, unlike uh, the global financial crisis, actually for those larger corporates and institutional, they were a lot less leveraged. So we've gone into this pandemic uh, period a lot less leveraged and very diversified. Um, Now, that's a different perspective for uh, a number of our SMEs and, and certainly some of the smaller SMEs who, having had a father who, who ran a business, then it's, it's almost like month to month. Um, and so, therefore, the pandemic is hitting harder. Uh, and consumers, there's a, obviously a, a cross-section of, of different circumstances. I, I had the uh, honour of, of listening to Janet Yellen uh, last week on a, on a webinar, and she talked about... Um, because someone asked the question around just, oh, my God, you know, in the US, they're spending so much uh, as a percentage of GDP uh, on top of what is all, all huge deficits. And she said, well, I'm actually okay with that because that's sort of modern economics, as long as you've got low interest rates and you've got the capacity to pay back. So I think our mindset, uh, and if I use that in a, in a reflective way on, a, on Australia, uh, I, I think there's, uh, there is absolutely the capacity for the government to do a, a lot in terms of helping uh, through and navigate through sensibly. Uh, you're right, monetary policy is a very short term, but it's not long lasting. It, it absolutely is part of the uh, solution, but, but the fiscal piece uh, that in terms of not just reform, which I talked about before, but, but just the different strategies. So uh, that's kind of how I, uh, how I think about it. But there's, it's a big question. So I've just hit the high points. Well, look, there are far more testing questions going to come from our audience members. Uh, and so we might bring up some of those uh, questions if we can. Um, Michael, just one that's uh, separately come through that I might just throw to you immediately, very, very focused on the university, just about the university's comfort about the return of students to campus. As we know, school systems are back this week. The AHPPC guidelines are different for children um, and adolescents than they are for young adults and, uh, and all other members of the community. But what's the thinking now about the return of students? Um, so we're keen to get students back to campus, um, Matt, there are, but also a little cautious and a little cautious because university campuses are actually one of the places that the health authorities are worried about as being um, sources of potential local transmission. Mm. With the social distancing guidelines, we can only get onto campus about half the current, the number of staff and students who are um, currently on campus at any given time. 
Um, there are some things that are not going to go back to campus um, relative anytime soon and maybe never, things like large lectures. Um, there are some things that we absolutely have to get back to campus, hands-on experience for um, students particularly who need it to complete their degree. And so from second semester, we're looking at a balance of um, on-campus and um, uh, online activity. And I think that'll be interesting. You know, the, um, the higher education sector, like the schooling sector, has been playing around with online learning for a very long time. And none of us have particularly wanted to make the jump because uh, we all believe in the face-to-face -face experience um, in one way or another. And yet, I think second semester and particularly first semester next year are going to give us the opportunity for some really interesting experiments in mixed mode teaching. There's a question here that's come from uh, James about whether in fact you're seeing or whether we think there'll be a value shift amongst the wider public as a result of this experience. Um, what are your thoughts, Michael? There are two things that are obviously coming through the conversation and um, that, that uh, we've noticed too in, um, in talking to our staff. The first is that many people have enjoyed the slowing down in life and the engagement with the local that lockdown has inevitably involved and enjoyed having that flexibility and all the rest of it. And that, um, that I think is a bit of a, um, a shift in mood. I don't think that we will want to lose that at some level. The other thing, obviously, though, that is more concerning is that your experience of the COVID pandemic has very, very much depended upon the nature of your employment and um, really has affected inequality in Australia in significant ways. And the government has intervened and that's been terrific and that's been great. But I think the challenge for Australia going forward is going to be how do we deal with that inequality in the period of the restructuring of the economy? Now, I'm confident enough um, in historical precedent to know that every time there's been a great upheaval, um, in the end, we've uh, managed to find something for everybody to do or for most people to do. But um, uh, periods of transition are very difficult. One of the fascinating things I think about 2020 is that at the end of January, if you'd asked just what is the overwhelming uh, image that this we would expect the year to have, it would have been of uh, bushfires, it would have been mm. our city shrouded in smoke, it would have been the big debate that we were having about climate policy and about energy policy as the summer manifests itself in all its horror all across the country. Do you see opportunities uh, coming now for us to be better equipped to deal with some of those entrenched, wicked policy problems that we've been singularly unable to effectively deal with over the last few decades. So is there a sense that we will have convinced ourselves that we can work together more productively and constructively around dealing with some of these problems? Um, we've had a great experiment in that. So we've been writing a sustainability strategy. And when we had a conversation in um, December about the things that were going to be most difficult to shift, one of them was that we had quite aggressive travel uh, targets. And everybody said, this will never work in a university context, particularly for Australians. We're so far away. We've got to be at those international meetings. There's no substitute. It's um, just not um, possible to get academics out of aeroplanes. And so um, while we can set targets in other areas, but hey, guess what? People are now saying, 
all those travel targets might not be ambitious enough. Um, And one of the, one of the great things about working in a university is that people don't just think about the immediate. And so whereas, for example, the the climate um, crisis that the papers were full of in January has now almost dropped out of public discourse, certainly hasn't dropped out of discourse um, at the university. And I think one of our roles as an institution is to say to people, um, what have we learned here that we can apply to these different sorts of things? And let's not forget the other pressing issues that we're dealing with. And if I could just add to what Michael said, Mark, uh, you know, I think the, the the quality of the conversations, even if we don't like the answer necessarily, the quality of the conversations with government uh, in terms of dealing with this and the building up of more trust rather than less, and the coupled with the expectations of our community at large, coupled with the fact that more... Um, organisations are mission-based and purpose-based. I'm actually quite optimistic that people will come together, that Michael and I will come together with some other people where we will work together to cut through some of these issues in a more, uh, I think, uh, stronger, trusting, uh, bigger partnership roles uh, with government uh, than we've seen before. Um, I'm moderately optimistic uh, that we can uh, that we can work through these some of these really sticky issues. Are, are you moderately optimistic, Michael, or are you a bit more or a bit less than moderately? <laughs> um, I think you always have to be optimistic. <laughs> I think you always have to be optimistic, and this has demonstrated that as organisations and as a community, we can respond when we re- think that something is really pressing. Um, you know, it used to be a um, line at Oxford that the University of Oxford could do anything it wanted in an hour. Um, so long as it wanted to do it and that it could not do anything it wanted not to do in a century so long as it didn't want to do it. Um, <laughs> and I, I, I think the same is true for some of those sticky problems that Catherine is talking about. Um, we've demonstrated that we can respond quickly, even respond quickly where it involves some pain in a pressing situation. Well, what other situations do we think are pressing? How are we going to respond um, to the climate situation? How are we going to respond to issues of growing inequality and all the rest of it. Um, And let's just hope that um, optimistically, um, some of the skills that we've been seeing our leaders demonstrate over the last three months or so are transferred to those other issues. Well, I think that's a good optimistic note to end on, given the (laughs) challenges of the year, uh, given all the work uh, that everyone has been doing to manage and live through this enormous disruption. um, we, We know that there are other great challenges out there as well. And perhaps this is one of the things we're learning, how to, how to articulate, identify, and be able to work together on solving some of those broader issues as well. I want to thank uh, Catherine Carver and uh, Michael Spence uh, for joining us today and thank uh, Sydney Ideas for hosting uh, this policy discussion. Thanks for listening to the Sydney Ideas podcast. For more information, head to sydney.edu.au forward slash sydney ideas. It's where you'll find the transcript for this podcast and our contact details if you'd like to get in touch with a question or feedback. And if you haven't already, subscribe to our podcast. You'll never miss a new episode. Search for Sydney Ideas on Apple Podcasts or SoundCloud. Finally, we want to acknowledge this podcast was made in Sydney, which sits on the land of the Gadigal people of the Euro Nation. It's upon their ancestral lands that the University of Sydney is built.